hey Paul, Paul, hey Paul, 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 hey, 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 it's our 90th episode. We, 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 we just had a, a listener finally submit a question. We're going to discuss it today. Thanks, Joel. Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner. Welcome back to Therapist in Motion. This is Dan hosting today. I am joined once again by Paul. Hello, hello. And our lovely special guest today, Sarah. Hello. So Paul is going to enlighten us after the lovely intro of the listener-submitted question by Joel. Yeah, as Dan stated, you know, we've had some good comments, but this is the first time I've had a listener request a specific topic for a podcast, which we appreciate greatly. And it's a good one. It's a tough one. There is no great answer to no, this, this, but it's a this. really good discussion, and it's an important discussion. So it's one we're excited to have, for sure. And it's a good long one, but I'm going to summarize the thoughts. So the comment goes into, you know, been on the listener's mind recently about the part that insurance has played in determining what validates physical therapy, including the value of reimbursement. And it kind of moves on as a small private practice that takes insurance. It's a headache to even get a real person on the phone about reimbursement, let alone, let alone actually negotiating rates. Kind of goes on a couple other components, but especially points out, it sounds like a lot of individuals are moving towards cash pay services as the answer, which we've certainly seen. But how do you balance these things? How do you find value in physical therapy without letting insurance dictate it for you? And how do we deal with this just overall very frustrating situation for a lot of therapists? Yeah, so I mean, I've spent some time over the last couple of days as we were planning to podcast on this, just doing some research on what what's out there and how the the hybrid model could potentially coexist, which, you know, when when you're looking the hybrid model is is the blend of cash pay options or alternative payment options as well as accepting insurance. And there's there's some good resources out there and there's there's some links to some good information, especially you know, put out by WebPT on the 2022 patient experience survey that gives some really good data on how patients are accessing physical therapy, what they're looking for. Uh, what other adjunctive services within the health or medical field that they are also utilizing in combination with physical therapy. And I don't need to to quote those stats because that's out there. It's easy for any of you to go and find. But it was very interesting as I was looking at that just to kind of see what's really out there and how we as a practice and as, as a profession can navigate these this, these situations with insurances and taking care of a community, but also valuing what we provide and our education and our expertise on the neuromusculoskeletal health side. You know, you bring up a really good point, Dan. And when it goes to the cash pay side, all too often I feel like people look at this as I'm all cash pay or I'm not. And there is definitely a blend that can exist, particularly to the first point of the question of we're letting insurance companies dictate what we can provide. It's a big frustration, frustration that I know you deal with all the time, Sarah, in certain insurances not covering public health, certain insurances being picky on the breast side of things. Like, what are they willing to cover? 
especially beyond just the rehab side, when you have expertise that you've shown, and we all in this room have patients that seek us out routinely with even just questions, if not coming back, they're willing to pay for those services to see you again, to be their kind of musculoskeletal go-to. And Dan, I know you said you want to uh, quote a lot of topics, but a good one I saw was the one you talked about, the 30-year-olds. Uh, yeah. Under 30. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Real quick? So the out of that that patient experience survey from WebPT, what they found is is patients under the age of 30 were more likely to return to physical therapy services without a referral from a physician because of the results that they had and the ability to engage with a professional at and a higher level, for lack of a better phrase. And those people will go on to continue to be repeat consumers of those services. So hook them while they're younger. And then, of course, we see those individuals that tend to need shorter plans of care because you're getting them before there's an issue when you can actually address things. Because we all know the frustration when you have the patient come through and you're like, if you'd come to me three months ago, even we could have done a lot more right now. We can get there, but like we're going to need to do a lot of work to get to this point. So I think there's a good blend that needs to be appreciated. But past that, for the rest of the podcast, I think we're going to all shift our focus away from the cash pay side. And I, I don't want to take this as we're just dumping on cash pay services. There is a huge need for cash pay out there. You're talking beforehand, Dan, you're bringing up different conditions. You have individuals with chronic pain conditions that really aren't going to do well in our environment. You have individuals looking at visceral therapy, neuromobility, certain things that you need a specialty practitioner, a dedicated period of time, a controlled environment. There are plenty of reasons why cash pay is very beneficial. And even beyond that, just orthopedic cash pay, right? There is a need for good, high quality orthopedic cash pay. On the flip side of that, though, when you look at cash pay, typically people are seeing decreased hours, significantly decreased patients. As has been pointed out, your community you're taking care of goes down to a much smaller size. You are not capable of taking care of anywhere near what you're taking care of before. And if we look at reality, we are talking about we're all busy. Our therapists are full. I was looking at a lot of our other local therapy companies. To my knowledge, they are all full. And if I take that and juxtapose it with the research that shows the vast majority of people that benefit from therapy aren't even seeking out therapy. I think it's pretty clear there's a bolus of people that need our services, need our help, that aren't accessing it already. And if we have everyone going to cash pay, that is not solving the problem of our communities at all. And we need to have people taking insurances, helping Medicaid, Medicare, every individual that deserves quality therapy providing a good experience to and not just becoming a mill where they're seeing too many individuals on the flip side. So with, with that understanding, and I completely agree, you know, I, I look at this as, <clears throat> and to kind of, you know, apply this to Joel's situation is what's the community that you're caring for and how can you serve that community? And there's lots of different ways to serve that community. And, you know, as we've gone through here, you know, we, we've ebbed and flowed over the years of looking at contracts and what's the percentage of that within our business and what decision do we make? And, and obviously none of those decisions are, are taken lightly or easily and they take months to years to finally make a decision, you know, whether to go out of network or to stop accepting it at all. Um, but in the short term, what's one of your early suggestions for, even if they work for, you know, really, if they're an outpatient at all, what are some of your early recommendations 
right away to help a therapist start valuing their services day in, day out with patients? One of the first things you have to do is you have to understand the game. You have to understand insurance. You have to understand reimbursement. You have to understand billing. Not a practice? Not a practice. But a game. game. And it's frustrating. It's very frustrating because especially when you come out of school, you recognize how much you need to know. You recognize how many clinical skill sets you're developing. You look at the research for the time frame it takes to develop the clinical reasoning of the expert level clinician we are all searching for. And it's frustrating to think about, I have to do something else that's not helping my community directly, but I have to focus time on learning about billing. I didn't get into therapy to learn how to bill. I just want to take care of patients. I hear that all the time. The unfortunate reality is you do need to at least have a working knowledge. I don't want people taking advantage of things. This is not an opportunity to promote, know the highest reimbursing codes and bill those. It is understand what charge differentiation is. And to understand that if you take good care of patients and you're going through a good progress and you're re-educating movement skills and you're promoting them back into function, you're getting specific to their actual needs, billing this and documenting appropriately is going to be much better than three Therax, two, or one manual, two Therax, two manual. You're going to get reimbursed at a higher rate. Understand how to support the actual care you're giving, document the actual care you're giving. You're going to be paid much more appropriately for the higher level skill that you are providing. So if you're not familiar with CPT codes, AMA billing versus eight-minute rule billing, you need to find some knowledge in these areas. It is absolutely essential. Don't overdo it, but do some. I feel like those are huge things that are not too daunting for young clinicians, but things that can really make a difference in your day-to-day practices and are just good long-term habits. I think also it's really important to know who your resources are in your clinic or your business or clinic company that you work for. Um, I had the luxury of working in the same building as our billing department, and I would constantly be talking to them, asking questions. And something I learned that I thought was particularly like disturbing and discouraging, but Blue Cross would automatically deny every reeval that you build. Period. Straight off the bat, that's what they did. But if you knew that and you appealed it or rebuild it, then they would pay the second go around. And it really was just a game they're playing to try to you know, minimize what their costs are, but because it was something I could engage with our billing department about and learn about, it was something that I could take into consideration and just get to know more about the specifics of each insurance and payer. And just to go a little further there, when BCBS was doing those blanket denials, they also sometimes do audits for cases or uh, episodes of care And I saw people that got denials or denial for their services for a lack of regular evals. So as Sarah's saying, you have one group saying, oh, we're not going to pay the first time. But I'm also at the same time saying, oh, you didn't do regular re-evals. We're not going to cover you. Those two things obviously can't exist together. It was simply a game. And like Sarah said, we always got paid upon reapplying the charges, resubmitting charges, or occasionally appealing, but it didn't really require any letter of medical necessity or anything crazy. It's just part of what they did. I've seen insurance companies that if you bill their act and self-care together, there's a certain modifier that has to be added. Almost every EMR system adds this automatically. Most therapists don't even know it's something that exists. And frequently, it just gets paid. However, sometimes insurance companies will deny and say they want notes to support that modifiers appropriately applied. If you don't have someone that is regularly looking at your charges, these things are easily missed. And when you start talking about some of these things, when you're looking at a $30 charge, you're looking at two units going across to you know, 50, 60 bucks, like that hits you, especially as a small private practice owner, 
particularly when those small private package owners often have a front office manager who is doing what? Billing, contacting referral sources, being your marketing team, being your scheduler, being sometimes your technician, being your delivery service, being your cleaning service, being every service that that company possibly needs, it's hard and easy to miss some of these things. So like Sarah said, find resources, find those to help you. Have someone you can reach out to that can help educate whoever's doing your billing on common things they see, common trends, tricks to look for. Don't be afraid of calling. Don't be afraid of asking questions. You have to dig into these things because insurance companies will often try to find ways to cut corners and not pay you when you can pretty easily and quickly actually get paid without putting in a substantial amount of effort or time on your side. Yeah, I, I think that those are great tips for people and if you have additional questions, reach out. Um, you know, it, not that we know everything, but we're fairly we're a fairly resourceful bunch and can provide direction to you know appropriate places to get more information and ask better questions. <clears throat> now, the other thing is we were talking about in show prep, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit when you talked about access to therapy and you know, the, the percentage of, of patients who really seek out care versus the percentage of patients who need care, who aren't getting care. You had a really interesting perspective, Paul, on the professional side of how we should view clinics who surround us and the opportunities that we can have and create by engaging in a professional conversation with them and not necessarily seeing them as competition, but rather what can we do to elevate each other and opportunities that we that, that may exist to ensure that the, the community of patients who access us, regardless of how they access us, right? They could access us with traditional insurance. They could access us with some sort of alternative payment method not that we have to sell those things, but we have to be educated enough as, as therapists and providers to be able to educate our patients to allow them to make that choice. Can you spend a little time and, and allow Sarah and I to kind of throw in our snippets there on, on really how you think this can be handled, not only at small practice levels, but branching that out into companies that are our size that have you know, 25, 26 clinics and, and even a little bit bigger than that? Definitely. A uh, little little Paul soapbox time. Um, so to really get to the, the meat and taters of the question, you know, like Dan said, what are some things you can do early? What are things you can do initially? At the heart of the question is kind of thought of like, how do we get better reimbursement, right? At the end of the day, I think all of us recognize we can't keep going at these decreasing reimbursement rates. It's not sustainable if you want to deliver the type of care that I believe all of us are delivering and no needs to be delivered. And unfortunately, as was stated in the emailed question, it is so hard to get anyone on the phone to listen to you. And we have tried over the years. I was there through the whole, oh, photo outcomes are going to be helpful and you can show your expertise and you can use those things to leverage negotiations and get paid higher rates because you can tell the insurance companies you're going to save them money by having shorter plans of care and better outcomes. And I have yet to see a single cent actually come through with that. If any of you have seen something, let me know, but nope. I'm still waiting. Filled out a lot of paper forms. <laughs> a whole lot. Actually, we killed a lot of trees. Bad repressed photo memories. We killed a are, lot of trees. Are all here. Happy to see that go. 
And I now see MIPS, and I've seen plenty of things in the interim. And now I'm hearing, oh, well, now with cost being a big part of the MIPS component for physicians, there's a renewed importance in actually having quality outcomes and having appropriate duration plans of care, and it's going to come through. And I really hope it does. I do hope it comes through that capacity. I would love to see that, but I'm going to be honest. I understand the bitter old man trope. I'll believe it when I see it. I am just jaded and don't don't trust any of that to actually come through. I think the way we make some change here is by actually going and doing a bit of what we talked about with us kind of going out of network. The way you make a change is if you go to UHC and try to argue for them for higher rates, they're going to look around and say, geographically, I have plenty of people willing to take this rate. You can take it or you cannot take it. That's fine. I have coverage for my people. The only way... I personally feel we're going to make a change is if UHC looks and goes, oh, Schnapple, I don't have enough geographical coverage for my beneficiaries. I need more therapists. I need more people that are actually willing to take this contract. That's when I see them come back to the table. Yes, I know hospitals have better negotiating abilities. Yes, I know POPs and physician-owned groups do. But if we're talking about private practice here, I see private practice kind of banding together big and small, to work towards benefiting our profession. And this goes into exactly what you just asked, Dan. I get a little honorary with the thought of competition out there. I've had people like, who's your biggest competitor? And no one. And I don't mean that as like, aha, I'm amazing. No one reaches me. It's <laughs> we are therapists as a whole. We are all trying to help. And one of the biggest negatives I ever see is the patient comes in and says, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what therapy is going to do for me. And at the root of this is almost always my mother, my brother, my father, my sister, my best friend, my whoever had an experience of therapy. It wasn't helpful. Went to therapy, didn't get a benefit. They went to therapy and then he's given this handout of exercises. So where's my handout of exercises so I can take that handout, pretend like I care, move on, not do them and not go to the next step. It's going to actually help me. Or they just want a massage. That's the other side of the equation. But I tend to find those bad experiences hurt us substantially. And often the bad experiences come into individuals that are just, quite frankly, overwhelmed and seeing too many people at one time. So when I look at competition, I don't believe any therapy is our competition out there. Like I said before, we are full. 360 is full. Foothills is full. Every local company that I know of, they're full. They have wait lists. There are plenty of patients, as we mentioned before. Research shows people aren't seeking out. There is more than enough patients to go around. That is not our problem in any capacity. Good therapy is also going to help me. If someone works down the, th down the street and they are not at Spooner and they are giving amazing care, yes, they're probably going to attract more people to them. Yes, people are going to be going, like, oh, I want to go see Evan. I want to go see what Evan is doing. I want hearing great things about Evan. But at the end of the day, he can only take care of so many people before he goes down a different path that I won't get into. And when he can't take care of them, he passes them to his other teammates. And then this kind of helps get that ball rolling of quality outcomes and therapy. And then also, where did Evan get his training? Where was he going? What's his education? What's his education? Referring providers suddenly start asking questions like, oh, I haven't seen good therapy. I'm seeing really good outcomes. I'm having happy patients. And I love my happy patients because primary care physicians, they don't have time <laughs> to figure out what your musculoskeletal needs are. They don't have time to dig into things. They need a resource that's a non-surgical option. They need us to come through. When they do, like, what are you doing? Where are you at? I, I've had plenty of referring providers that get super excited when they're actually able to have a good dialogue and we can work together with them. So the need is most definitely there. So good therapy drives 
more excited patients, better referring providers, better individuals, even if maybe at first it's isolated silos, it will trickle out to everyone in some capacity. So that's why I don't see a competition there. I see us working together to elevate our profession and not accepting people that give substandard or suboptimal care, and that hurts our profession badly. Well, and I think some of that comes with looking at what what is the contracted rate that that insurance company is going to pay you? If they're going to pay you fifty dollars or sixty dollars for a session, that's in certain situations where there there it may feel like there's pressure to see more people because of the accepted rate from that payer. And now, instead of having one patient every thirty minutes or one patient every forty five minutes, now that turns into two, or in certain situations. Three, and then that's potentially where the quality aspect comes into play. We're like, well, I didn't get better with therapy because, well, perhaps it was in a situation where their insurance was dictating the decision that a therapist or a clinic director or manager or whatever was making and, and, and not in a negative way, but putting pressure on to see volume to cover the financial side. And that's impacting the care and the quality of care that we strive to provide and to, as Paul just stated, then it hurts the entire profession because of accepting a subpar contractual agreement. And we've seen this before, right? We've shot ourselves in the foot before as a profession by doing exactly that. Arizona didn't get to one of the lower reimbursed states just because people didn't like Arizona or thought the cost of living was really low. We saw large boluses of people, and I, I keep saying we, and honestly, this is before any of our time, but it's something that is part of our profession, part of what we have to own and improve upon. So really working together to accept, like, hey, if you had that $50 per diem payer, find out who's around you. Find out they're probably feeling the same struggle as you, especially if you are a small private practice owner. Yes, you might have some people that are willing to weather the storm depending upon what their needs are, but the more therapists you can get around you that recognize the struggle and are saying, I'm not going to compromise the quality of care I give to get in too many people and more people. I'm going to give that excellent experience no matter what. I'm willing to go out of network with this insurance provider to force them to recognize I don't have enough geographical coverage because that is the only time outside of like a hospital negotiating things I have actually seen a successful negotiation occur and successfully increase rates appropriately. So what you're saying is if you give good care and choose to go out of network, the patients will still come to you? Eureka. Oh my gosh. But to that point is if your reputation precedes you and you decide to take that chance and go out of network with the plans that just aren't serving you and allowing you to provide care in the way you want to, your patients will still come and your repeat patients will still come and your providers will recognize you as a good therapy provider. And that's exactly right. And, and I'm sure there's listeners who work for companies who've, who's may not be a prime decision maker and their owner or, or, you know, their and their administrative team had made that executive decision again, that's been months in the, you know, in the process, it's not something that's done lightly, again, because you have to analyze what's the percentage of our patients that are coming in that have this and what's the probability that people are going to utilize their outer network benefits. And if I go back and I reference that WebPT study again, one of the things that patients really wanted is they want cost transparency. And if, if you can provide cost transparency and have a team 
who is willing to check out of network benefits in certain situations as we found as we went out of network with an insurance some people's out of network benefits are very very good and the cost to them is very similar to what it was when we were in network or it's a little bit higher but then the return back for you as the provider is substantially higher and you're still maintaining that patient that values you as a provider and the net the resources that you have beyond your therapy skill set that's something i think is 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 important to have and worth a discussion in those practices that are looking at this what are who are our resources with us do we have the bandwidth to verify out of network benefits and see what that's going to be and what that looks like as well as having payment options for people not just going solely cash pay and you bring up a great point. So, like for example, we went we went out of network as a company with UHC uh, not too long ago, a couple months back now. UHC has an online network ver- benefit verification, including for out of network. I think we've been surprised how not bad some of those benefits have been. I can tell you that as a company, we've seen pretty good reimbursement, well over a hundred dollars, but nothing absurd for these individuals and payers. Um, I have some patients that are getting half of it covered by UHC. Sarah, I know you mentioned you have someone that's completely covered. Yeah, out I network. have a couple of patients who 100% coverage of outer network benefits. Then I have one that has, it's 50% coverage. She's paying $70. Now, $70 isn't cheap by any stretch, but it's not that much different than a high deductible cost for people. And as a company, we're getting 140. Suddenly, I can spend the time she deserves with her. She gets quality, and she's more than happy to put $70 down for that care. Yes, I want to reiterate, not everyone can afford that, but there are options and opportunities that you may think, oh, I can only go cash or I can only go insurance. There are happier middle grounds that do exist and can be successful. And then you still have accessibility options for your community. Because at the end of the day, uh, unfortunately, it's not perfect, right? Like if we talk about cash pay, eliminating some access, and again, I just want to state for the record, I am not trying to downplay the value of cash pay. I have friends that do it. I fully support it. But looking at taking care of people, going out of network does still decrease your community, right? It it still does. But unfortunately, we have to draw draw a line somewhere. We can't keep doing what we're doing and expect to be successful. So I think this is a fair line to draw, especially when the idea is not just out of network forever. The idea is hopefully others will be encouraged by this and join us. And I've heard a number of PT companies that are going out of network or have already beaten us and had already gone out of network with UHC, especially among others. And if we get enough people doing that, then we can come back to the table and say, hey, collectively, with the power of all of us together, give us something that's going to sustain our business so we can actually take care of your people the way they deserve to be taken care of. You know, as you as we've been talking about this, one thing that I think is also crucially important is for discussions like this to happen on a regular basis and not that companies or owners have to divulge all of their uh, you know KPIs and financials to their employees but have the open dialogue of talking where are we what does this look like not that I want a, a practice owner sitting there and saying how much money they make to their employees or this is how much money Sarah makes to Paul, although they're, they're married, so they probably you don't want to know, know about that. Tim's second yacht, right? Um, 
<laughs> I want to know. <laughs> but but having the having the transparency to have this conversation as a team and working through those things again, like Sarah said, we don't want to limit access because we got in this profession to serve. But on the flip side, like there's still a component that we want to be able to pay our bills and be able to pay our employees and take care of our families, but on the, but also still take care of our community. And there's ways to do that as, as I think we've done a very good job of outlining and hopefully Joel will be able to work through this podcast and, and, and chew on lots of this and have more questions that arise and stimulate conversation because this is something as a profession we don't. We should not shy away from. It's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's nothing to get, I mean, you can get frustrated by it, but if we don't look at others as competition, we look at it as this is really benefiting our profession and the community that we are striving to serve, good PT is going to drive more people to access our services, plain and simple. And I love what you brought up, Dan, you know, having those conversations as an entire team, because let's be honest, there's pain points on this, right? Like going to network with UHC, it's not fun. And certain people have felt it. And I don't even just mean felt it as in financially, oh, you know, we lost some visits and this is hard and we're gonna have to work hard to find some to fill it up. But like sometimes you have groups that just have a large amount of UHC and you lose a big piece of your patient population that you care about, that you're really vested into. So it takes that full team committing to it and understanding it because it's not like, oh, this is easy. Go do it. Like this is a challenge. Like you said, Dan, we get into this often to serve and to help our communities and to help others, not buy our second yacht. So there is going to be an understanding and a discussion of why we're doing this, how we're doing this. And there needs to be some buy-in with the entire team as far as this is going to move our profession forward. This is going to move our company forward. This is going to help us as a whole. And as you said, Dan, help those community members get the services they deserve and not become a number in a mill as has unfortunately occurred in certain circumstances. Well, you know, and I just thought about this again. I mean, I had patients when we, when we went out of network that – wanted to continue to use their in-network benefit. And it was very interesting. I actually had a patient who called. I was the first call he made. His wife fell. They went to the emergency room and she was diagnosed with a fractured shoulder and they were contemplating having a surgical intervention. And he was like, this is who we're referred to see. What are your thoughts on this individual? I, you know, is there anybody else you would recommend? I said, no, that, that person is fantastic. He's like, okay, well we see them tomorrow. They're, the ER doc was thinking that this, that my wife was going to need surgery. And he was like, so when would she start with you? And I was like, well, she can start with me as soon as doc says that she's cleared. So you just let me know and I'll take care of it. And I'm like, but what's your insurance? It happened to be using United Healthcare. And I said, look, here's the situation. He's like, oh man, there was some more colorful language, but we've identified as a clean podcast on Apple, and I'd like to keep it that way. So I'm going to say Schnapple, like Paul said earlier. And I said, look, here's your options of places to go that I feel very confident that your wife will get just as good of care as if she came to see me. I'm always here as an option, as a complimentary check-in. I'm here. I think that that's part of this conversation as well as knowing who is around you that you trust to send a patient to regardless of what it is. It might be I need to send you to this individual that is only cash because they th their environment is going to be a better opportunity for you to get 
better than what I can offer or their skill set. So I think that's another component that oftentimes isn't really talked about, but is crucial when we go back to like what what's your network and who are your resources. Because there's times that I have to refer out because there's somebody that has a better skill set and can take care of this patient better than I can. Well, and that's a higher level commitment to serving all the patients and the customers. Maybe you were not the best fit. Maybe our setting isn't the right fit. But knowing quality providers in a better setting is still giving that high level of customer service to both the referring provider and the patient. It's a, it's a commitment we should all have to every single person that calls, whether they get service with us or somewhere else. And, you know, Dan, you, you, you proved the whole idea, like, you're the trusted health resource there, right? Like, they trusted you with their health, which is awesome, and you're delivering for them. You have options. You provided them potential options. The options of our out-of-network and other things weren't right, which is perfectly fine. You gave them a trusted option from that. And that is, again, that's that non-competitive. We're working together. I've referred people to people who pay, who do only cash when appropriate. I've had a beer with a friend who works for a different company to talk about patient cases that were challenging. I've had people who have cash pay refer people to me because they recognize like this person needs three times a week and I'm charging them $250 three times a week when they're really going to be better in your environment and your expertise is really going to be perfect for what they have. Like it's again, all of us working together to that higher level of purpose of helping our communities and striving forward for the right way. And that will as we do more and more and share more and more, help drive the profession in the right direction and drive business the right direction when people recognize we're going to work together and we're not going to accept some of these poor rates, we're going to say no. Well, Joel, I think you, one, provided a great question. And we could probably discuss this for a lot longer. We could pull in lots of other people and continue this conversation. So really, my charge to to Joel specifically, and the people who are frequent listeners that are in smaller private practices to start that conversation and have that conversation of what does this look like? Going back to the first nugget that Paul dropped, what is your charge differentiation and what is allowed by the payers that you contract with? Then the second thing is is knowing your resources, as, as Sarah alluded to. What does Blue Cross Blue Shield or Aetna or Cigna allow? Do they deny a reevaluation the first time? And with resubmission, they pay without supporting documentation. And then third is understanding the contracts of the payers and how can you and your teams navigate that to still give quality care and then ultimately make a decision that's going to continue to value you, but also serve your patients. Paul and Sarah, I thank you. Joel, I thank you for submitting the question. And we look forward to having more listener support or submitted questions for us to discuss, because that means that we're actively engaging with our listener. Also, I assume as we're approaching the triple digit episode, there better be some really good questions coming. Or there's something really fun planned that Dan and Paul have. Oh, can it be so, as unhinged as the 25th episode? 25th episode. Oh, maybe it'll be even I'd more like fun. To, I'd like to be invited back. <laughs> All right. So as always, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please reach out to us at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 